We're in the next in our series of messages on why believe. We have talked about why Christ is the only way to God. Why does God allow suffering? We've uh, already taken up several subjects, but today I want to ask the question which non-Christians often ask, can I trust the Bible? Throughout my ministry of, uh, of uh, 40 years at this stage of life, I have heard this question raised by more non-Christians probably than any other question. Can I really trust the Bible? God's promises are verified by writings of the Old Testament and New Testament writers. But Peter gives us an insight in 2 Peter chapter 1 as to the supernatural event which probably brings more significance and more credibility and trustworthiness to the idea of an infallible, inerrant word than any other event in the New Testament. So take your Bibles and turn to 2 Peter chapter 1, and we shall begin our consideration with verse 16. 2 Peter 1. Now here Peter is going to give us the most profound argument for trusting in the Word of God. There have been false teachers who were asking the question, where is the coming of Christ? Where is the promise of His coming? In fact, in chapter 3, verse uh, 4, he expresses that. He said that scoffers will come in the last day saying, where is the promise of His coming? For since the fathers fell asleep, all things go right on. They continue right on as they were from the beginning of creation. This question takes on greater significance in an age when science appears to be able to explain everything. It takes on greater significance when it appears that man's learning is reaching a peak and man can explain almost anything. But there's still some things science cannot do. And there are some things man cannot explain. And we ask the question, is the Bible trustworthy? Now, theoretically, man is, is uh, a mind and uh, intellect or will, sensibility and emotion. He has three parts. The mind takes in facts. The will acts upon the facts. And the result is an emotion. But that is being reversed as men automatically assume the Bible is not trustworthy. So they make a decision based upon ignorance and not the truth. Several years ago, a great newspaper writer in uh, England wrote to 100 famous men. Many of them were non-Christians. Some of them were anti-Christians. A few were believers. He wrote to 100 men in England. And he said to them, if you were imprisoned in solitary confinement for three days, and you had your choice of three books, what are the three books that you would take with you into solitary confinement? And 98 of the 100 men, including non-Christians and anti-Christians, said, I would take first and foremost a copy of God's Word, the Bible. <laughs> Even unbelievers recognize the value of the Word of God. Now, as Peter comes to this text, 
he works on the premise that the divine majesty of Christ is so amazing, it is so marvelous, it is so wonderful that the majesty of Christ has to be revealed. His argument is that Christ will come because of who Christ is. Because of Christ's amazing majesty and power, he has to come in power and glory to judge the earth. No doubt about this. The coming of Christ will be in power and glory, and the kingdom will be uh, inaugurated with his coming in power and glory. So Paul makes, or Peter rather, makes a statement here beginning in verse 16. He said, we did not follow cunningly devised fables. We didn't make up stories like the Greeks do. When we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. But now he indicates something. We were eyewitnesses of his majesty. This is the most interesting argument in scripture perhaps. I know Christ is coming because Christ is majestic and divine. I know then that the Bible is true. Because Christ is coming. Do you watch his statements? Christ is full of majesty. Therefore, Christ will come in power and judgment. Therefore, the Bible which prophesies his coming in power and judgment is true. And that's Peter's argument. Can I trust the Bible? Oh, yes. Peter says, let me call two witnesses, if you please. Let me call two witnesses to tell you about the majesty of Christ. First... Peter says, I like to call the New Testament apostles. In fact, you know who went with Jesus to the Mount of Transfiguration? It was Peter, and it was James, and it was John. And he calls the New Testament apostles to be witnesses of his majesty. Now, the first argument is we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. See it in verse 16? I did not follow cunningly devised stories. I saw the majesty of Christ on the mountain. I was there. Perhaps the transfiguration of Jesus is the most supernatural event in all of the supernatural New Testament. Take your Bibles and turn, hold your hand here, but turn back to Mark chapter 9. And in Mark chapter 9, you will see the story, Mark's account of the transfiguration. Now, the whole theme of the transfiguration is death and the relationship of his death to the kingdom of God with power. And after six days, verse 2, Jesus took Peter, James, and John, led them up on a high mountain, and there on the mountain. Verse 3, he was transfigured before them, his clothes becoming shining, exceedingly white like snow, such as no launderer on earth can whiten them. <laughs> Not even Tide could get things cleaner than the way they appeared on the Mount of Transfiguration. Peter said it was the most amazing thing I've ever seen. Jesus is standing on the mountain, and suddenly his body is covered with whiteness, with glory, with light, so white that no fuller's white has ever been whiter. And Elijah talked with them, 
and Moses talked with Jesus. And Peter, verse 6, because he did not know what else to say. <laughs> How many have taught that lesson to your children? When you have nothing to say, you know what? It's probably best to say nothing. Amen? <laughs> Peter didn't know what else to say. So he blurted out a dumb, dumb, dumb statement. He said, let's build three tabernacles. One for Jesus, one for Elijah, and one for Moses. And he didn't know what he was saying. As if that wasn't enough to impress Peter, James, and John with the majesty of the divine Christ. Notice what else happened. Verse 7, a cloud came. A cloud came. What was it appeared in the wilderness to guide the children of Israel by day, class? It was a cloud. What stood over the tabernacle? A cloud. What stood over the temple at its dedication? A cloud representing the glory of God, the majesty of God. A cloud came on the Mount of Transfiguration and overshadowed them. You know the amazing thing about this is, Peter says, I wasn't told this. I was an eyewitness. I saw it with my own eyes. And once you've seen the majesty of God, you can never be the same. And you won't ever take his word the same again. I was an eyewitness. I saw it all happen. <laughs> well, the reason that John the Baptist sent to say, Jesus, are you really the Messiah? Should we look for another? Because there was something going on there. The Old Testament prophesied the coming of a Messiah, the coming of God. The Old Testament prophesied that God would reveal himself in glory and judgment. The Old Testament prophesied that God would redeem his people. And it prophesied that all the messianic promises would be fulfilled. Now Jesus fulfilled all of those except he refused to judge the world. Now, later they discovered that the reason he refused to judge the world the first time is that he's coming back the second time. And it was on that that many people stumbled over whether Christ was the Messiah. They thought, is he really the Messiah? Why isn't he fulfilling the judgment? Because he's coming again. How do I know he's coming again? They killed him once because Peter said, I saw his majesty. I was an eyewitness. And I know he's the son of God. I was an eyewitness. And because of his majesty, I know his work is not finished. He will come back and fulfill the rest of the story. The amazing thing about this is that Peter says, not only was I an eyewitness in verse 16, but we were ear witnesses. I don't know if there's such a word, but there is now. We were ear witnesses. Verse 17, for he, Christ, received from God the Father honor and glory, Peter said, I not only saw his majesty, I not only saw the cloud, I heard him receive honor and glory when a voice came to him from the excellent glory saying, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. And we heard this voice which came from heaven when we were with him on the holy mountain. So now Peter's going to argue, hey, I not only saw his majesty, I heard God say twice, this is my son. Then he said, my beloved son. He used that personal pronoun twice. 
And Peter said, I saw the majesty of God. And I heard the majesty of God. A stellar display of his majesty was accompanied by confirmation with a voice. Many of us have had some manifestations of the majesty of God, haven't we? There have been times when you couldn't explain what happened in your heart. There have been times in suffering when God came upon you and manifested his glory and his comfort and his grace in a way that you can't even describe. There were times when you were still and quiet before God and you heard something that you can't, it is indescribable to anyone else. And a non-believer doesn't even understand what we're talking about. He looks at you and says, what are you talking about? But John said, Peter said that James and John and I were eyewitnesses and we were earwitnesses. We saw his glory and we heard the Father speak from heaven. You know, in the final analysis, when anybody says, why do you believe the Bible? Do you know what the most successful witness to the Bible is? It's your own personal experience because nobody can take that from you. Nobody can take that from you. We had a young lady who was taking, she was 19 years old. She was taking uh, Share Life. I'll never forget this. She worked for a store. She was a retail clerk, as I recall. And she didn't feel she was well educated. But we had taught her in Share Life that when all else fails, give your personal testimony. That's what Peter is doing. You guys may say that the Bible is not trustworthy, but... Peter said, I saw the majesty revealed and I heard the majesty confirmed from heaven and I'll never doubt that God will keep his promises and fulfill his word. Well, this young lady went out one night and she witnessed the two young doctors. And the doctor said, I don't know if we can trust the Bible. And she said, well, I don't know what you can or cannot trust. She had heard me say that sometimes you can ask them, what proof will you accept? That usually drives people wild because... Frankly, most people don't know what proof they would accept. In Luke 16, it's sort of like the rich man and, and uh, the poor man. Because when the rich man was in hell and he lifted up his eyes in torment, he said, Father Abraham, send somebody to tell my brothers. And Father Abraham said, no, if they, if they don't believe Moses and the prophets, they won't believe if one rises from the dead. There are some people who just will not believe because belief is a matter of the heart, not the head. It's not just a head. So what she did, this 19-year-old, she said, I don't know what you would accept, but I'll tell you this. I met Jesus, and he has transformed my life, and you cannot take that away from me, and there is no other explanation for what's happened in my life. And I wanted to stand up in that Share Life reporting session and clap my hands and say, honey, you did it exactly right. Peter says, I'm an eyewitness and then he says, I'm an ear witness. I heard the voice of God from heaven. Now, I could belabor the point, but the text doesn't go any farther than that. For instance, yesterday I went over and had lunch with my daughter-in-law and son and two little granddaughters. And just as I'm walking out the door, John calls and says, Dad, wouldn't it be great on a hot day to make some ice cream? I love homemade ice cream. Do you like homemade ice cream? I picked up my, my ice cream maker and I picked up a can of fat-free Eagle brand condensed milk. That's the way to do it. 
and you can mix that baby with fat-free skim milk, beat it up. And then I took, uh, I, I took it all over the house. I made it over there. And five, then I took three nearly perished bananas and I mashed them up with a fork. And then I mixed a little milk with them and beat them up into a puree, a banana puree, puree. And then I beat that eagle brand milk and all that milk together and I put that banana in there, half of it started out with and I beat it all together and I put ice in there and then just before it turned hard, I poured the rest of the banana puree in there so there'd be some fresh, delicious banana taste in there. It wouldn't all be frozen. And the, suddenly we were eating when we heard the ice cream maker stop. And Emily says, Mimi first, Papa. Mimi first. So I took her in and let her taste it. She said, mmm, good. Now, she was not only an eyewitness and an ear witness, but she was a tongue witness. <laughs> I can go on and give you other proofs. I mean, doesn't the Bible say, oh, taste and see that the Lord is good? But Peter says we're eyewitnesses and we are ear witnesses. Then he calls his second set of testimony. Verse 19, the Old Testament prophets. We also have the prophetic word made more sure, which you do well to heed as a light that shines in a dark place. Until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. Knowing this first, that no prophecy of scripture is of any private origin or private interpretation. For prophecy of the Old Testament never came by the will of man. But holy men of God spoke as they were moved by the Holy Spirit. Now Peter says, wait a minute. My experience has confirmed or made more certain the word of the prophets, which told us Christ was coming and that Christ will come in judgment and that the kingdom will be restored to Israel. So he says in verse 19, we also have the prophetic word made more sure, which you do well to heed as a light that shines in a dark place. Now watch what the prophets did. First, they saw the light in darkness. They saw the light in darkness. When there was nobody else pleading for the purity of the faith, there was Isaiah standing alone. When there were very few pleading for the fidelity, for fidelity to Elohim, there was Jeremiah standing in place. There was Obadiah. There was Hosea. There was Habakkuk. The prophets of the Old Testament that prophesied of Christ saw light when nobody else saw light. And it is intended, Peter is saying, to show us that the word of God, the prophecy, the Bible, is an inerrant guide when there is no other direction. That's what the believer is to keep his ear tuned to, his eye tuned to. The Bible, the Word of God, is a guide until light shines 
in a dark, it is the light, and it is a guide in darkness. And until the day dawns, the day of Christ's judgment and coming in power and glory, and the morning star rises in our hearts, the star that's been in our hearts now comes to fruition when the day dawns. Venus is the morning star. I see it early every morning. Reflects the light. I think it's Venus, isn't it? Who's a star watcher here? <laughs> Uh, Venus is the morning star reflecting those rays. And then gradually as the day comes, the morning star disappears. And the scripture is like a morning star telling us that the day is coming, the day of Christ's judgment, Peter is saying. The prophets were right. They saw the truth in darkness and told us Christ was coming and now he said, I've seen and heard and verified what the Old Testament prophets wrote about. Now, what he's saying is that, first of all, the scripture is verifiable. In fact, you, everybody in here who has believed on the Lord Jesus Christ has verified the word of God. And it is verifiable by testimony. Does it work? And the testimony is by many. I mean, here's the amazing thing. Over 1,500 years, writers wrote and there's a unity that threads all of that truth together around Christ that is enormously, incredibly pure and unambiguous. It is the word of God that is the guide. The scripture is verifiable. The Old Testament prophets wrote it down and Peter said, I've seen it and I've heard it. But then he points to a second thing. Not only did they see light in darkness, but they heard a voice in silence. Knowing this, that no prophecy of Scripture is of any private interpretation. The word interpretation hints at origin. It, I mean, Hosea just didn't sit down and say, okay, I'm ready, I'm going to write a prophecy. What am I going to write? As he lived close to God, as he listened to the voice of the Lord, as he sought God, God revealed things to him and God told him things so that he heard God's voice when nobody else was hearing God's voice. And he sat down and wrote in the Bible exactly what God wanted him to write. He was not a secretary. He was not a mechanical dictator or he was not an amanuensis as they as uh, they called secretaries who were paid to write down what they heard. He was, he was writing down what God had impressed in a way that allowed for his personality. Somebody asked me not long ago, how can you say the Bible is infallible or without error? Because the Bible claims for itself. 2 Timothy 3.16 says, all scripture, pasagraphe, is God breathed? Theonustos is God breathed? Just as God created man, and man breathed, God breathed into him the breath of life, and man became a living soul. God spoke the word, and man wrote it down. What God was showing him and speaking to him, or as Peter explains it, prophecy never came by the will of man. Somebody didn't just decide. Think I'm going to write me an inspired book today. But rather what happened was men living close to God with their ear tuned to God heard God speak and said, I've got to write it down. They heard the voice. 
Listen carefully to this. If you take notes, you can write it down. If not, just listen. Moses said he spoke exactly what God told him in Exodus 19.3. David said he spoke by the Spirit, 2 Samuel 23.2. Every one of the prophets said, God said to me, and I wrote it down. Isaiah said that in Isaiah 7.7. Ezekiel said that in Ezekiel 7.1. Hosea said that in Hosea 4.1. Amos said that in chapter 1 verse 3. Obadiah said that in, in his chapter. Jesus promised to speak to the disciples by the Spirit in John 14, 25 and 26. Paul said he wrote what the Spirit taught him and told him to write, 1 Corinthians 2, 11 and 13. And John wrote exactly what God said to him. Revelation chapter 1, God said, write the things which you have seen and heard. He was an eyewitness and an ear witness. Now you say, but I already believe that. I know you do. But I want you to know so you can tell the world that they can trust the Bible because this is the Bible's claim for itself. That's where we start. I have a choice. I can believe God or I can not believe God. I can believe God's Bible or I can not believe God's Bible. And so the Bible speaks to us. Prophecy never came by the will of man. But how did it come? Holy men of God spoke as they were born along or carried along by the Holy Spirit. There was the union. God spoke to man truth. And then God superintended the writing of that truth. But man's personality comes out. So you see Luke writing as a doctor. And you see Mark writing to the Romans in a concise gospel, the shortest of the gospels. And you see Matthew writing to the Jews with his long genealogy. But God spoke it. And if God is a perfect God, God cannot speak error. You say, well, is the Bible a scientific book? No, the Bible's not a book of science, but wherever it speaks about science, it is absolutely true. Amen? And wherever it speaks related to scientific things, it is absolutely a treasure. It is not wrong. Well, aren't there, aren't there things I don't understand in the Bible? Yes, most of the seeming inconsistencies can be explained if you understand them. They're really paradoxes, two teachings alongside. Well... <laughs> How can, how can I be sure which is the right translation? Some people think it's got to be the King James. Some, well, folks, none of the translations are inspired. One man said to me some time ago, he said, you know, I'm just so confused. There's so many translations of the Bible, I don't know what to believe. Well, as it is given in the original autographs, it is inspired and perfect treasure of truth. Amen. The Bible never changes, but words change. So how we translate what God said has to change. It has to be kept up with the times. Words change their meaning. For instance, when the King James was written, the word let meant uh, hold back. Now it means permit, let go. So, so we have to update it. That's why. But that's, that is not a testimony against the Bible. That's a testimony for the Bible. It is a book that is not tied. It is truth that is applicable to every generation and every culture and every language. That is evidence of the Bible's origin from God. So Peter writes, Can you believe the promise that Christ is coming back in power and victory? Absolutely the Old Testament prophets 
saw the light in darkness and wrote about it. And they heard the voice in silence and spoke and wrote as the Holy Spirit carried them along. Let's just conclude by applying all of this. I love the Bible. Do you love the Bible? I have been fervently studying the Bible for more years than I can count. And I can tell you I am as excited about Bible study today as I was 40 years ago. Never runs out of truth. I never cease learning something from the Bible. You can learn something every time you read it. Every time you pick it up. God's word is God's word. I want to give you several statements about the Bible. First, the Bible works. It transforms lives. The Bible works. <laughs> the Bible works. I, I, I read uh, Jim Baker's book. I was wrong. Brenda Lipbaum gave it to me, and I, read, I finished it last week. Interesting. How many of you have read the book? It's really interesting. Good, good, good to read. Very interesting. But it didn't transform my life. It gave me insight, but it didn't transform or change my life. I'm not going to change one thing I'm doing right now because I read Jim Baker's book. I was wrong. I, I, I'm, I didn't have anything else. To, I, I, I'm not hornswoggling anybody out of anything or trying to, or even I don't even want to be on the edge of it. Amen? But when I read the Bible, it's like a sharp razor to my life. A doctor went to a D.L. Moody meeting. He said, I wanted to hear this unlearned man, and I wanted to laugh at him. And he said, I started out laughing at him because Moody would use ain'ts and, and, and he would mix singular nouns with uh, plural verbs and singular verbs with plural nouns. His language was sometimes atrocious. But he said, that man Moody just kept firing the Bible at me like bullets. And those bullets went straight to my heart. And he said, before I was done listening to Moody, I have been converted. I have been saved. The Bible works. Secondly, I believe the Bible lives. I believe the Bible is a living book. That's why it is valid in every age, in every culture. The book of Hebrews says the word of God is quick, living, and powerful, and sharper than any two-edged sword. It's a living book. I love to read J.B. Phillips. In his book, Letters to young churches, he said this, as he was studying to do his, his, uh, his translation, he said, I was continually struck by the living quality of the material. He said, I often felt like an electrician rewiring an ancient house without being able to turn the mains off. I like that, Danny. Did you hear that? I felt like an electrician wiring an ancient house without being able to turn the mains off because everywhere I touched the Bible, it was zapping me. It was alive, a living book. Thirdly, the Bible endures. The Bible endures. Men have tried to cut it up, destroy it, outlaw it, control it. In 303, the Roman emperor Diocletian started the greatest campaign against the Bible the world has ever known. He wanted to destroy every copy of the Bible in every nook and cranny. His 
efforts to outlaw the Bible exceeded even the cultural revolution of, the, of uh, Madame Cho's uh, revolution in, in China where they tried to stamp out the Bible. And within 20 years after his efforts, Constantine had become emperor and he had proclaimed the Bible the infallible judge of all truth for everybody in the empire. <laughs> Diocletian failed. Men have tried to kill the Bible. You can't kill the Bible. It's God's living word. The Bible endures. Oh, Diocletian wrote across the pillars into Rome, extincto nomine Christianorum. Extinct is the name of Christian. 20 years later, Constantine makes it the official religion. I think that's funny. Maybe you don't, but I do. The Bible inspires. Spurgeon preached more than 4,000 sermons from the Word of God, just verse-by-verse verse exposition of the Bible in London. He saw hundreds of people saved, but more than that, Spurgeon saw homes for widows started, orphanages started, he saw welfare programs started. The church did it in the name of Jesus. Bible societies were started to distribute the word of God. Such is the inspiration of the Bible. Wherever the word of God has gone, man has been motivated to alleviate the problems of other man. The Bible creates. It's a creative book. The Bible has supplied the greatest themes for the greatest writers. Sometimes I wonder what uh, the great musicians of the past would have written about if they didn't have the Bible. Elijah, the oratorio, or the Messiah. Look at the biblical themes to the great music of the centuries. What about literature? Dante, what in the world would have made Dante famous had it not been for Bible themes? Milton, Tennyson, Tennyson, Wordsworth, Carlyle. What about Michelangelo? The Bible was the heart of, of what he did artistically. John Bunyan was put in Bedford jail for being a Christian. During that 12 years, he wrote one of the most profound books, Pilgrim's Progress. If you think that's only for children, you've made a terrible mistake. And if you've never read Pilgrim's Progress, you ought to read it. The Bible creates. But the Bible stands. What the Bible has said has been verified over and over and over again, I have studied biblical archaeology for many years, for 40 years. I, I, I take Biblical Archaeologist magazine. I'm telling you, I have never seen an archaeological discovery which undermined the Bible. Everyone I've ever read about has supported the Word of God and the Scripture. And if there's something you don't understand in the Bible, just hang on. In time, it will be shown to be true. In Ezekiel chapter 26... You read a prophecy about Tyre. God said, Tyre, I'm going to scrape you, you as a great city like the top of a rock and fishermen will be spreading their nets on you. Nebuchadnezzar captured Tyre and he just left the huge city with all of its rubble right there. And people laughed and said, see there, the Bible is wrong. The Bible prophesied that Tyre would be like a top of a table, a rock table. And then 300 years later, Alexander the Great came along. Some people from the city of Tyre, which 
uh, which Nebuchadnezzar had destroyed, moved out to an island and started a new city of Tyre. And Alexander, wanted, Alexander the Great wanted to capture the new city of Tyre for Greece. So Alexander the Great took all the rubble of the first city which Nebuchadnezzar left and he dumped it into the sea and built a causeway and marched out there and captured the new city of Tyre. And today, if you go to the location of the city of Tyre, that Ezekiel condemned, you will see it like the top of a rock and fishermen spreading its nets exactly as the prophet Ezekiel had predicted. I could give you, you want 50 of those? If you'll stay long enough, I can give you 50 of those. Predicted prophecy. The Bible stands. But you know what's so rich to me about the Bible is the Bible feeds. The Bible feeds. Peter said it's milk for the newborn babe. And the writer of Hebrews says it is meat for the mature Christian. And the Bible is so adaptable. It meets everybody's needs. It's what drives us and keeps us going. It is the word of God. The word of God. General Lew Wallace, author of Ben-Hur, one of the most popular novels ever produced, was never interested in Christianity till he began work on his book. In his autobiography, this is what he said. At that time, speaking candidly, I was not in the least influenced by religious sentiment. I had no convictions about God or Christ. I neither believed nor disbelieved in them. My reading covered nearly every other subject. Indifference is the word most perfectly descriptive of my feelings. My ignorance of the Bible was painfully a spot of deeper darkness in the darkness. So he determined to read the four Gospels closely to learn for himself the truth. And as he read, he said, long before I was through with my book, he testifies, I became a believer in God and in Jesus Christ. Amen. I want to tell you the promises of God are true. If you've never been saved, what he promised he will do. Every promise in the book is yours to claim for yourself or for somebody else. It is true. It feeds you. It is creative. It is powerful. It is living. It transforms. It works. It is God's word. And that's why we teach the Bible, preach the Bible, study the Bible, pray over the Bible. Why do you give such emphasis to the Bible? It is light in the darkness. And it is light to the soul. Life to the soul. And Peter uses both eyewitness and earwitness. And the prophets heard and saw Peter said in Acts, when they asked him, why are you preaching this? He said, we cannot but preach the things which we have what? Do you remember? Which we have seen and heard. Amen and amen. Let's stand in prayer.